Welcome to the Seven Figure Fundraising Podcast, the podcast where we discuss specific tactics and strategies to grow your nonprofit. I'm your host, Trevor Bragdon. Today's guest is Joel Manby. Joel is the author of the book, Love Works, Seven Timeless Principles for Effective Leaders, which draws on his 25 years of CEO experience at major corporations. Love Works has sold over 100,000 copies and a new expanded version was just released in March. Joel has previously served as the CEO of SeaWorld and served as the CEO of Hershen Enterprises, which runs theme parks including Dollywood and sports entertainment franchises like the Harlem Globetrotters. Additionally, Joel has spent 20 years in general management in the auto industry, including CEO of Saab North America. Joel is currently the non-executive chairman of Orange and consults and speaks on Love Works, crisis leadership lessons, and other leadership topics. Welcome to the show, Joel. Hey, Trevor. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Well, I really have been looking forward to this interview. Back when I was in graduate school, we actually watched the episode of Undercover Boss that you were in. It was the only one we ever watched in the show, but they had it and we watched it in the class because I thought it was such a great example of leading a company and just really putting employees first. So do you mind just telling us about Leading with Love and what made you write the original book, Love Works? Well, sure. And and interestingly enough, that Undercover Boss episode had quite a bit to do with it because the premise of the book, for those not familiar with it, is it's it's taking a paraphrased version of 1 Corinthians 13, seven words of love, agape love, and teaching our employees actually how to love each other and love the customer, which there's a lot to unpack there. But how it came to be is I had basically my story is 20 years in the auto industry of kind of wandering around searching for how to lead in a better way. By Christian faith, I wanted to live it out. Couldn't find examples of it until I switched after 20 years from autos to theme parks. And at Hershey Entertainment, they taught us to love each other. And and I put the vernacular to it in the curriculum and, and so forth. But when I was an undercover boss, I thought kind of I was the only person who felt this way. Well, when that show was on, 20 million people saw the show because it followed the NCAA quarterfinals. And the only show that beat it that week was American Idol back then. It's such a dominant program. So I just was inundated with letters and phone calls saying, I wish our leaders were like your company. And I wish our owners care like your owners care. And so I knew it was a crisis out there. I wasn't the only one that felt disenchanted and felt this desire to do more and lead a better way. And so that's how it all started from really Undercover Boss leading to the book. Now, I think from the book standpoint, uh, it'll take me a a few minutes to answer this question because I I really want people to understand what it's not. And a lot of people get turned off by the title love and they think it's soft and they think, oh, I can't be a great businessman or a great leader if I'm soft. Well, there's nothing soft about it. It's not love the emotion like Americans think. It's love the verb. It's actually based on one of the four Greek words for love called agape. It is a verb. And I can tell you from leading both ways, leading with love is much more difficult than actually just leading in an autocratic kind of non-caring style. And so the book walks through seven words 
in detail. But then I think what a lot of people miss is any, almost any company has seven values or some set of values. But at Hershen and at SeaWorld, we took those seven words and we really built processes around them. And that's the key difference people miss. You can't just define the words. You have to define them. You have to teach them. You have to measure, discuss, and then reinforce. Sometimes even through pay plans, which we did, we actually would pay people more if they hit their numbers and their values. And it's a pretty, pretty unique thing. The last thing I'll say about it that I don't expand upon a lot in the book, but the results are incredible. And people who are listening, whether they're running a nonprofit or they're doing fundraising of their own, it gets tremendous results. The average engagement score of the U.S. worker is only 30% rate their engagement at work top score, which is really bad. At Hershen Properties and SeaWorld, when we put this in place, our engagement scores went from on average 30 to 40 percent, all the way to 70, 80 percent best score and engagement. And of course, that leads to lower turnover. It leads to better guest scores. So it wasn't just a philosophy. It really, really worked and created an incredible place to come to work every day. Right. I'm sure that contributed to really much lower turnover and all of these things that are just huge costs for businesses like that. And Trevor, they are way underestimated costs, right? I mean, people just, turnover costs us a lot more than we think it does, that's for sure. Well, one of the themes of the book that comes up in a couple of different parts is you talk about this difference between be goals and do goals. Can you tell me what those are and what the difference is? Yeah, and that's that's a great question. It's astute of you to ask that one because that's probably the biggest takeaway for most people in that book is, All of us in American culture, whether we're running a family or a school board or a business, we have do goals. We got to hit certain volume of profit or attendance or fundraising goals as your listeners have to. All of us have to do that. But most organizations and sometimes families or even individuals don't focus on their B goals. Do goals, what you have to get done every day. B goals are how you go about doing it. What kind of leader do I want to be? And so the uniqueness of Hershen and SeaWorld under that principle is you don't just talk about the numbers of sales and profit. You also talk about the numbers as far as engagement scores of your employees, what leaders have better engagement scores. Do you as a leader behave along the lines of our behaviors that define those beagles? Because it's not just the seven words of love within each seven words we actually have certain behaviors that we define. For instance, patience is one of those words. The definition would be to praise in public. Do you praise in public and admonish in private? When you do praise, do you do it specifically? Do you put them back in the job? Do you teach them how to do it better? So there's behaviors that we have to adhere to to score well, so to speak, on the beagles. And although, yes, it's subjective at times, it's still all about the discussion and the vision of an organization adhering to those beagles. So would you say the beagles are more like the vision mission and then do goals are more execution? Well, actually, I would say more in part, yes, because your vision has to include how you want people treated. But I would say more the do goals are what you do every day. The beagles are how you go about doing them, the what versus the how. And that's attitude and it's, it's how you treat people with the seven words. 
Gotcha. And that's like why in the book you talk about how at Hershen you had a kindness score everyone was evaluated on. Yeah. So just uh, without going into the detail on each one, the words are patient, which some things you can't be patient on, but most of the time it's about how you admonish people. Kindness is about giving encouragement, a lots of encouragement. Science says that the human brain, Trevor, needs, I say in my book three times, encouragement for every takeaway or every admonishment. The actually research says five times, the human brain needs five times encouragement that it gets in admonishment because we tend to look at the negative of everything, whether it's the fight or flight in our DNA. Another word is truthfulness. What does it mean to be honest in all things? Trusting is another one where it's about delegation. Most leaders that I have found, especially small business leaders tend to not want to delegate and it kind of hinders the growth of the people. Forgiving is another word. How do you forgive? How are you unselfish? And then how are you dedicated? So all those words have behaviors attached to them. That's great. Well, and just shifting gears a little bit, I want to talk first a little bit about philanthropy and fundraising, but then also go into your experience running both SeaWorld and Hershen, because there's a lot of leadership lessons, especially about leading during a crisis. But to start, I thought it was really fascinating in your book, and it also came up on the Undercover Boss episode, was the way at Hershen you had this, what was called the Share It Forward Foundation. Can you talk to us about that and how it worked with your employees? Absolutely. It was a wonderful program that we developed. It basically starts with the employee. If the employee gives nothing, then nothing happens. But if they give $1, the company matches it dollar for dollar. And then actually the owners at the time were matching it another dollar. So one became three. And all of that money was used 100% to help employees in need. People didn't have benefits. So we were using this to help them get benefits. But it was a foundation, so it had a separate board. People applied anonymously, and so they could be given that benefit through the board without it being taxed. Um, and there was a whole process we had to go through, but it's a really, really good idea and just taught people that their giving could help their fellow worker. And we would still tell stories and give examples. Sometimes the people were willing after the fact to share their names, and we would put it out in newsletters and just how the company was helping them. And I'll tell you, it just really created a positive upward spiral. And we took a similar thing to SeaWorld. It wasn't as robust, didn't have time to get that done in the short time I was there, but really, really strong, solid program. Yeah. And what I love about it is this whole idea of everyone's giving something, but then it's helping your other coworkers, your other employees on the team. You give an example in the book about how somebody, one of the employee's sister died unexpectedly and it helped cover the funeral costs for her. Just being like a really great community and neighborly towards each other. That was Monica in Valdosta, Georgia, if I remember right. The stories are just amazing. Richard, who we helped in uh, the Undercover Boss episode, helped build out his house, was, was uh, flooded and destroyed basically. And he was living in a pop-up tent for literally months because he couldn't afford anything else. Uh, we helped fund scholarships for children of our employees. So the benefits just kept going out and out and it just really, really helped. And most organizations, they focus so much on giving to the community, which certainly I'm, I'm not against at all. I mean, it's great. We had giving programs to the community too, but I think if you're not going to take care of your own employees, probably nobody else is. 
we should be treating our, our employees well. And I think if every company led like the Hershens leader, you know, the lead with love principles, we wouldn't need so many government programs because unfortunately, a lot of people aren't unselfish. And that's a whole nother talk for a whole nother time. But it is a really good program that I'd highly recommend. Right. Well, and that's a good segue into my next question, which is you talk a little bit about this in the book, but what's your own personal philanthropic strategy? Like, what do you look for in nonprofits and that you give money to? Yeah, that's good. At a high level, probably no different than a lot of your clients or companies. I think of it as terms of time, treasure, talent. Time and talent is my chairmanship at Orange. Treasure, a percent that's progressive depending on how much I made and also a cutoff point for net worth. Like everything gets given away after X. And I set that when I was in my 30s, not my 60s. But then the key point that actually Andy Stanley taught me was give that gold to your accountant and then the accountant holds you to what you've committed to. So there's no cheating. As far as what I and my wife like to give to, we do give on passion where we have three or four real passionate areas like adoption still or helping underfunded churches. I do like to see business plans. I mean, I am a businessman, so I think that way. And I do think some nonprofits, as I'm sure you agree or have seen, I don't just back a vision because the founder had a vision. I have to have a passion for it, but I also have to, I like to see a need for that product in the marketplace. And a lot of people would disagree with me, but like for orange curriculum on our board, I, we make the churches pay for it. If they can't afford it, we give them scholarships, but that way we're creating a product that's so high quality. We know the market wants it. And that's, I think that's applicable for a lot of product-based nonprofits. So for me, I like to see the business plan. I like to see that the market really needs it. In other words, what would happen if it didn't exist? Now, certainly that philosophy is not true for like compassion or world vision where they're feeding the hungry. Uh, that's, that's not applicable there. But at least for me, that's kind of how I, how I think about it anyway. Well, and the good thing about having somebody pay for something is there's so much more skin in the game, even if it's a nominal amount based on the actual value being delivered, it just helps have everyone more engaged in the whole process. There's absolutely no doubt about it. I mean, we have found that it's interesting you mentioned that because the stats at Orange back that up. The turnover on our curriculum and through the Orange nonprofit, we, we basically provide curriculum to churches, preschool all the way to high school all around the world. The turnover rate's much higher when they get it for free and they don't invest in it. I can give you statistical facts to back that up. It, it makes intuitive sense, but the numbers back it. Well, another good segue into leading during a crisis. And it seems like from reading your book, like you have led through a lot of crises between- It's one thing I'm an expert in. Right, exactly. <laughs> in the book, you talk about leading through the dot-com crisis, the financial crisis, and then a business crisis with SeaWorld. And I want to hit on the financial crisis and then at SeaWorld. So first, though, can you talk about what you guys did at Hershen? This is 2008, 2009, the big economic downturn. You guys are running amusement parks and how you approached making decisions and making pretty dramatic cuts. Yeah, I'd be happy to. We moved. The first thing I'd say for your listeners is we moved really quickly. And a lot of times in crisis, I think leaders move too slow. They kind of see it, but they're afraid because it's 
it's hard. This stuff is really hard and there's no certainty to it. So we had just made a several, several acquisitions. We had a very high level of debt and we were up against some payments that we weren't going to be able to continue making given sales dropped 35% after Lehman went out of business and everybody stopped spending. So we said that I think the key principles for your listeners would be we set a number that had to be cut. And then we let the leaders in the respective properties make the decisions on how they were going to get there versus telling them how to get there. And that's common sense on one hand, but most companies don't do it that way. And then we also, the thing we did demand is pay cuts before layoffs. So everybody had to share. Senior leaders had to take a lot bigger pay cut than the front line for obvious reasons. And you know, we did all those things. And actually, there's a great story in the book about the Dollywood leaders at Stolly Parton's Parks that, that we run for her. They basically agreed to take even more pay cuts than anybody was anticipating so that they didn't have to lay anybody off. And you can imagine what that does to the people there and the loyalty that that created. But in the unfortunate circumstance, I think the other thing I would share that's meaningful is for the people who we did have to lay off, mostly at corporate office, we, A, and most lawyers would tell you not to do this. I'll say that right up front. We just did it the way we felt was best in how to treat people. We gave them six months of notice. So instead of just giving them six months severance and putting them out the door, we gave them six months notice that they were going to leave. So we gave them six months to find a job so they could be employed. It's always easier to find a job when you have a job. We let them use our email system. Now, we, we set up security-wise. They couldn't get anywhere else, but we let them do that. We gave them counseling. We helped them with a resume. And here's another key principle that I would share for people. No one likes to let people go. And other than what I just said, one key differentiator that any leader can do is follow up with them after the fact. Help them get a job either while they're with you or after. and a phone call makes all the difference in the world. And it also will tell you if you handled it the right way. Because if I was afraid to call somebody, that tells me I didn't handle it the right way. But early in the book goes into some of those bad examples too. But I, I just think people should always look themselves in the mirror. And if they have to lay people off, they look at themselves the next day and they feel good about how they did it. So those are a few thoughts I have on how we handle it at Right. Well, it's one of those things like treating people like human beings. You're giving them a lot of trust by letting them be like stay on the email system, not reckless trust, but you're treating them like humans and people that you care about. And I think in the book, you talk about how everyone had a job except one person by the end of that six month period. Yes, they did. And the one person that didn't, we helped them find a job. I still keep in touch with that person. They're doing really well now. And I also tell a story in the book of the one senior executive that wasn't part of that layoff, but I, I handled it so much differently and better than another one early in my career. And that individual who we had to let go, cost structure, and it wasn't quite working out, we're still good friends today. He just emailed me two days ago, matter of fact. And I say that to people because I've done it the wrong way. I'm not saying I know how to, to do it, but it's so much more gratifying as a leader to just get through it and give people extra time. I'll give one more example of what we're talking about. I've been reading how the theme parks have been handling these issues. And with the COVID crisis, Hershend, even though I'm not there, they kept paying for benefits and bridged their people to unemployment. So they never were without a paycheck. Whereas 
SeaWorld, which I'm no longer at, they, they didn't give them any notice, no bridge to unemployment, and they didn't pay for any benefits. So these people were just basically put out in the cold very quickly. And that's just not the way to live life and, and what you do to those people. It certainly doesn't create any loyalty. Right. Yeah. Because when they ask them to come back, when the furloughs are over, who's Why more likely they? to come back? Right. right. Why would they go there unless they absolutely have to? Right. And just kills culture. Well, let's talk a little bit about SeaWorld and your experience there. I thought this part in your book, it's like this, the last third of the book is really fascinating. And I think there's a lot of interesting parallels to what's going on today with the whole cancel culture and like businesses, like groups trying to cancel businesses because they disagree with either a position they take or something they do. And when you stepped in as CEO of SeaWorld, this is right after the movie Blackfish had come out. So can you tell us about that experience and what your lessons learned were from that? Well, yeah, we were definitely at the front end of that. And basically for your listeners, if the, just big picture, SeaWorld was very well-respected firm, top-notch in zoological fields and really great reputation. Then Blackfish came out. It was a shockumentary. It was very well done, but very untrue. And yet so well produced that it had a very emotional effect. I mean, I knew it was wrong and I still didn't like SeaWorld when I saw it because it was so well done. And it had devastating impact on our company. Our sales dropped in half. The, the CEO who was there right when it happened, he was let go. And then I came in to try to reposition the company to something different than animal entertainment. There were so many things going on that it's tough to go into all of them. But I think at a, for your listeners, the thing that I would talk about is when you have an angry crowd like this, the, whether it's what we're looking at now with politics or even attitude towards COVID-19, really get the facts on what's going on versus the noisy minority. Because in the animal activist world, they were protesting us every week. Uh, Blackfish had really killed us. We did a lot of research on was it just going to fade away or was this because of the film or was this a cultural movement that was not going to fade away? And in our research, it said that it was a cultural movement. It was not just Blackfish, although Blackfish accelerated it. And we even did tests with a firm out of D.C. of anticipating what would happen if we ended whale breeding. What would people's attitudes be? Would it make them more likely to come back to the park? And it was an incredibly, incredibly difficult decision. The hardest one I've ever had to make in business in my life because I knew a third of the company would dislike the decision, probably hate me for it. I had to make sure it was going to help pivot the company in the right direction. But on top of all of that, we're in the middle of a really crowded market with intense competition from Disney Universal. So we had to make sure our steps were accurate. And I try to think of a couple principles from the chapter for your listeners. And one is that when you're in this kind of crisis, your employees, you, you feel as a leader, real responsibility, obviously, for what's going on. And our tendency is to want to give certainty, certainty that you're going to have a job, certainty that the company is going to stay in business, but we can't. But what we can give is clarity. And clarity is different than certainty. Clarity is, here's what I know today. Here's the facts. Here's what we're going to do about it. And if things change, you come right back and say, here are the new facts. And here's clarity on where we're going. And I think we did a good job as an organization keeping them abreast as we move through all this, 
especially given the dynamics that it was a public company and really, really hard to deal with. I think in the end of the day, if I as a leader just had to deal with the external dysfunction that was out there and the attacks against us, we would have been fine. But I was also dealing with some internal dysfunction with the board that that caused some real strain. And you all have to be rowing in the same direction in a crisis. So if, a, if any of you find yourself at odds with other leaders or a board or a management team, boy, it is so important that you guys have to fuss and discuss until you get on the same wavelength so everybody is rowing in the same direction. Then I think you have a chance at getting through the crisis. Right. And what you talk about in the book is this whole like board turnover because of the crisis. So you have new people coming in. Then you have weird fractions kind of forming on the board. So then you're kind of having two different groups you're having to deal with, both internally and externally. And for listeners, like you during this time, you were having PETA was picketing your home. Even I saw some pictures online, like from when you were announced as CEO, they had signs that say how you killed orcas. You hadn't even started your job. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Just... They actually, I was living in Atlanta and yeah, PETA protested our house. They scared the heck out of our son. It was really bad. PETA is, uh, they are well-intentioned. I won't, I don't doubt their hearts, but their tactics are horrible. I just think they go about their change in a very incorrect way. Other organizations that support the same kind of issues, that do it in a much better way than they. Right. Well, and one thing I appreciate, like the honesty you have in your book, where you talk about in one point forgiveness and how you're not quite to the point to forgive them for terrorizing your family in that sort of way. And I appreciated that sort of candidness. And the impact it had on people's lives, what, what people don't understand in this cancel movement, you're affecting people's lives, their livelihoods, their jobs. And I know we don't want to switch to COVID crisis, but I think that's what we're missing in this current debate today of we're kind of solving the COVID issue with a sledgehammer when it's really a very scalpel type of situation because you know, what's going to happen with suicide rates and just the dysfunction in the family and substance abuse and joblessness and what that does to people. There are a lot of negative ramifications of shutting down the economy that we don't seem to want to talk about. And that's what I mean in a, in a crisis. Clarity and getting the facts right is so important up front. Well, and you talk about that yourself in your book about go through this experience at SeaWorld, you end up resigning and just like the impact that had on you personally. Do you want to share a little bit about that? It was a very difficult time. I, I will say in making the pivot, I learned a lot before I left. And that is we actually, when I was talking about PETA, we actually partnered with another animal activist firm called Humane Society of the United States. And Wayne Paselli was their CEO. And our companies were enemies at the time. But we forged a relationship quietly and privately. We met actually in DC, incognito at these restaurants, got to know each other. And the reason I felt I wanted to bring that up is what we learned, we got to know each other. We found out we had a lot more in common than we didn't agree on. And we dialogued instead of monologuing at each other. In today's world, all we're doing is monologuing. And I would just encourage people to dialogue, whatever the issue is, whether it's fundraising goals or just management, we are losing the art of dialoguing. And we're losing the art of realizing that these are complex issues that do not have simple soundbite answers. And that's one thing I learned in the, in the turnaround at SeaWorld. 
I will say as far as my own, my own personal failures and where I really got off track, when you're in a pressure situation, and I, I think this is applicable to everybody right now, Trevor, I think these are the most stressful times that most of us will ever lead through or go through. And it's so easy to get off track. When I'm on track, I have a quiet time. I read those seven words of love from Love Works. That's who I want to be. Those are my goals for each day. When I get off track, I let the stress get to me. I stop having quiet time. The do goals become too important. And unfortunately for me, I wasn't truthful to my, my former bride because I, I was too concerned of the ramifications. And instead of just taking the ramifications right up front, I wasn't honest and it ended up costing me my marriage. I still think if I had just dealt honestly with my dysfunction that I, I could have made it. And it's painful. I can't hardly get the words out. But I, I just want listeners to know that the truth is always the right answer, even if the ramifications are dire. And I, I think because it, do, it only gets worse, it doesn't get better. If I could leave with one thing or do one thing differently during my SeaWorld time, it would have been in all cases, no matter what, be 100% truthful. And then I, I would have had a different outcome. Your book, I think part of their revision, like I didn't read the first version, but the revision, you speak really candidly about like the stress and like you spent two and a half years working 16, 20 hour days, like trying to deal and turn around this company. And then when it gets done, just how much your kind of loss of purpose and that feeling of what's left to do. I just thought that was a really powerful part of your book. Most business books are all about the highlight reel, the good times, you know, it goes from one success to the other and you think it's a straight line. But in reality, there's a lot of low points along the way. There are a lot of low points. And I, I really appreciate you saying that, Trevor. And I think the reason it's important to do so is we are all humans. We all make mistakes. And when all the leaders, or especially maybe church leaders, as an example, or, or business leaders, if everything is always positive, it makes the younger generation think, well, I don't deliver, or I, I can't live up to this. And we all make huge mistakes. All I can encourage people to do is you can't take those mistakes away, but you can learn from them and you can be a better man or woman moving forward. And my simple mistake, even though I wrote a book about it and I, ah, it's painful, but I didn't focus enough on my B goals. I was too focused still on the do goals, even though I knew better. But part of it is, and another point I'll make is it's so important in a crisis to stay healthy, to get enough rest. An exhausted leader is not a good leader. You don't make wise decisions. And then if you're starting to numb your pain in a variety of ways, right, that the world offers to numb your pain, that makes your thinking even worse. And now that I'm seeing a really good psychologist and helping me through that loss in my marriage, I've learned that I really wasn't very healthy then. I didn't see it in the moment. And I've never actually expressed that verbally to anybody other than my, my wife. But I don't think I was healthy. And you just don't, if you're in that kind of pressure cooker and that kind of intensity, and you don't really take care of yourself, you're going to make bad decisions. And that's the other advice I'd give to anybody, anybody listening, just stay healthy. I mean, you get rest, do things you enjoy, do a hobby because it can really get away from you pretty fast, actually. 
Right. When you're working that hard and that like trying to turn things around, it just shortens your time frame and probably the, how long you're viewing decisions because it's always changing. And and for what really, you know, in the end of the day, what was I, I was afraid of failure for sure. I was afraid of the financial ramifications, which didn't materialize anyway. So we just have to really evaluate what are we afraid of and what, what do we want to be known for truthfully, and it is the B goals, it's not the do goals. And I, I think the book goes into that in pretty, pretty good detail. You know, Trevor, one other thing I'll add about the mistakes I made is it was a very, very dark period. And it was five years of really being in the pit of despair, I would call it. And, but I will say now, you know, I'm on the other side of it. And I actually recently got remarried, wonderful, wonderful woman, and great relationship with my children and our children. So I just want to give encouragement to people that no matter what mistakes you've made, if you keep your head in it and change yourself to the better, you can still come out the other side because these are very stressful times and people are thinking all kinds of crazy things and whether it's depression or anxiety or suicidal thoughts, you know, I just want to encourage people that you will get through this and you'll be better because of it. I just want to give that encouragement. Well, and I think one of the great things you talk about in the book is the importance of seeing a counselor, like finding somebody if you're having that sort of dark period, seek out help. There is better alternatives. And I just thank you for talking about that in such an honest way in the book. Absolutely. So much of it is our thought pattern. Really, it's all our thought pattern. It's everything because the human being, our body wants to be healing and wants to be healthy. Uh, but our minds do all kinds of things to make it unhealthy. And that's a great learning from a counselor. Right. When you have this interesting point you make, and I haven't heard this expressed elsewhere, but the difference between seeking happiness instead of contentment. Do you mind talking about that a little bit? So, so many friends are well-meaning and well-intended when they say, hey, just do what makes you happy. Well, Actually, that can really get you in trouble. And a, a great, great counselor of mine, David Arterburn, he said, do what makes you feel good about yourself, not what makes you feel good. And that is such a key point. Do what makes you feel good about yourself. And to me, it is honoring those beagles. And that's what I have learned of contentment is contentment is really a character thing. There's nothing in amount of money or job position being CEO or not that brings contentment. Matter of fact, the higher I got and the more CEO jobs I had, it's harder to stay content because there's just always problems. So contentment and peace come from honoring your character goals, not your do goals. And I think I I knew that, but it wasn't until I kind of made a mistake there that really, really drove it home. Final advice for people going through this COVID crisis, business has been shut down, nonprofits really unclear about the future. What should they be thinking about doing for the next, like as they plan the next 90 days, six months? Yeah. You know, one thing I'll say, and it, I did write a whole blog on kind of using the seven words of love on this crisis and the crisis leadership so they can go to joelmanby.com. There are some really good, I think, because I've, I've read a lot and took some other people's ideas as well. And But there's some good material there for a really full answer to that. But I think in the short term, what I would try to think about is, first of all, making sure we trust our, our employees, trust our folks to 
do their jobs. It's so easy in a crisis to kind of gather the wagons. And when we're separated and we have to do it through Zoom calls, it's even more important than ever to trust people, do the RASI charia where you know who's doing what and who they're responsible for. But also being brutally honest, truthfulness, one of the words of love, we have to be brutally honest with people because they read it from a mile away if we're not. And I also going, going back to encouragement, just really, we have to over encourage right now because of the distance. It's so easy to read into not being on a Zoom call or not being in this meeting as you're being left out or you're not trusted anymore. I'm seeing that in rampant fashion and talking to employees and consulting some with other companies. There's just a lot of uneasiness and settlement. People need to be reinforced. And also a final word is forgive yourself because nobody's perfect in this situation. And these are the most difficult leadership times I do think we'll face in our lifetime. That's great. Well, wrapping up, can you tell us about the work you're doing at Orange and your leadership consulting? Absolutely. For more on the consulting, again, it's joelmanby.com. If, if you buy the book there, I, I also will have a video series on crisis leadership. But I, that's where my vision is right now is to help other companies with servant leadership because I believe in it so much. So I speak and write on it. And then at Orange, we're trying to basically take great, great secular training, what I call secular, and contextualize it for the church and put it through there. But, I, but that would all be still part of the joelmanby.com website. So that's really where I'm focused and, and just appreciate any support there. Great. And the name of the book, again, is Love Works, Seven Timeless Principles for Effective Leaders. And we'll put a link in the show notes as well. And it's really worth your time reading. It's a great book. There's lots of insights, just lots of anecdotes of just ways to treat people really well. And then just really a great story about leading a major companies in America today. So just tons of leadership lessons and really just a lot of honesty there. So I really appreciate you being on the show, Joel. And thank you for taking the time. Thanks, Trevor. And keep up your good work as well. Thank you. All right. Thanks. Thanks for listening. To learn more about Seven Figure Fundraising and our training, visit sevenfigurefundraising.com. Finally, if there's one person you know would benefit from hearing this episode, please take a minute and share it with them. Thanks. Thanks.